blessings of love and of fear God, I love my church, I don't even care who he is Don't even care who he Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Every Little Voice, the podcast on community music brought to you by all of us at Community Music Schools of Toronto, which is expanding from the Regent Park School of Music. And we're delighted to present season four. Enjoy. And if your little voice and my little voice get together one we make a joyful noise Welcome back to Every Little Voice. In March 2020, I was working in a restaurant. I remember our staff meeting around the bar when our manager broke the news about closing down for a couple of weeks. It was supposed to be just enough time for everything to blow over. At first, there was a lot of denial towards the seriousness of the pandemic. But when two weeks turned into a month, then two, then three, It became hard to ignore the diminishing likelihood of resuming life as I knew it. I'm sure you remember those strange times too. Last year, I met with Sarah Beijing, theater professor and dean of York University's School of the Arts, Media, Performance and Design. I wanted to hear her insights on how the pandemic influenced arts education at the university level. One last uh, kind of question, looking for some observations from you. We're speaking in mid-March 2022 right now. And we are in yet another transitionary phase of the pandemic. We're returning to in-person learning and work. And I don't think I'm alone in bracing for any sort of unexpected sudden change in the situation that requires us to pivot and go remote yet again. So with this on my mind, I was reading uh, your early pandemic blog post on unifying accidents. And you wrote that this is the lesson of the unifying accident. The realization that we are in a unique and strange moment together and that we can all shape what happens next. And it's been nearly two years since you wrote that. So in your eyes as an educator, what are some notable things that happened next? Well, thanks for that question. And, and also thanks for, for reading that post. First, I have to acknowledge the ways in which what you just read is wrong, which is to say my, my perception is wrong. The pandemic was for many of us a unifying accident, but it it was by no means universally and equally experienced by everyone. Although the pandemic certainly affected lots of communities around the world, the impact of that was very differently felt depending on where you were and what kind of resources you had to draw on. So in the past two years, I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that billionaires became trillionaires while many people lost their jobs and many areas of the arts really struggled to simply survive. I know since we're talking in the context of RPSM, now known as Community Music Schools of Toronto, live music venues in the GTA are still not quite sure how and what return will look like. Lots of small businesses couldn't survive you know, in my neighborhood, lots of restaurants that had just opened are no longer there. And a lot of other small businesses have shut down. So I, you know, and that's to say nothing of historically underserved communities that experienced even more unemployment and very disproportionate health outcomes. We have folks at the university in the School of Global Health, you know, who have studied this quite extensively, that, you know, health, safety, well-being, 
very different depending on what kind of community you're in, depending on, you know, very marked by racial identities, very marked by socioeconomic context. So I don't want to overlook or overshadow any of that. This unifying accident concept was coined by actor Spalding Gray. It refers to an unanticipated and unintended theatrical event, one that unites the cast and audience in a shared, maybe shocking, moment that's unlikely to happen again. Through an innovative and relatively optimistic lens, in her summer 2020 blog post, Sarah related this unifying accident concept to the pandemic. She described how, despite the sudden stoppage of performance as we knew it, demonstration and consumption of the arts continued to proliferate and evolve, especially through digital means. This idea was a call for resilience. However, like Sarah described, creative needs exist alongside other needs. And for individuals, families, and communities, these needs are uniquely defined by our social locations, our power relations, and our experiences. When it comes to youth music education, what are some things that educators and leaders have to carefully consider? Well, I think mental health has always been an issue pre-COVID. That's Dr. Bina John, who we've heard from in previous episodes. So the numbers are staggering in terms of how many children and youth suffer from depression and anxiety. This is pre-COVID. So you can imagine after COVID, during COVID, those numbers will have risen drastically. So I believe our major obstacle is going to be supporting youth and children with their mental health needs. So what does that look like? In the thick of the pandemic, there were so many things to consider, like lockdowns, school closures, and finding opportunities for students to safely socialize. Educators were operating on unstable yet fertile grounds for new teaching methods. Here's Sarah's thoughts on the matter. I was really in the early days of the pandemic. It would be a mistake to say that I was excited. I was quite terrified, like many of us, about what this meant and, and how we would sort of survive. But one thing that I think that I was really encouraged by is that, is that people did learn new things and figure things out in a very different way. And what I saw in a lot of our faculty members and a lot of our teachers and researchers alike was trying to figure out how to meet a whole lot of students in a whole lot of different places. And sometimes that was in different geographic places. Sometimes that was in different socioeconomic spaces. Sometimes it was about figuring out how to retool a class based on very different levels of access to technology. I think that a lot of awareness and assumptions around who our students were and where they are were really exposed by the pandemic. And what I saw overwhelmingly was people bending over backwards to try to figure out how to meet those students, again, where they were, and really being cognizant of the real diversity that happens across our school and across our university. And so recognizing that we need some consistency and connections, but we also need some flexibility and some awareness of how to adapt and how to, again, how to meet people where they are. So I, I thought that was really exciting. I will say very selfishly, as someone who spent 
you know, nearly 20 years, sometimes feeling like I was on the margins of my field, talking about digital performance and technology and what it meant to watch theater on screens and having people be like, yeah, that's not really theater. That's not really important. All of a sudden that like the entire field suddenly was laser focused on theater and performance on screens. I found really exciting. And I, I hope that we can continue to hang on to this spirit of experimentation. And again, a spirit of risk. I think that would be a great outcome and a tolerance for a wide variety of different kinds of new projects. So that I found, I found really exciting too. And, you know, I didn't think we could do half the things we've been able to do online, but we have. In our first episode, Bina John touched on the emotional needs of young people. Here she is again on the matter, describing how music educators can support young learners. Many psychologists believe that emotional understanding precedes cognitive understanding, that we measure things or we understand things emotionally before we understand things intellectually. So when a baby cries, they know that by crying, they're going to tug their mother's strings and the mom is going to do something. That happens far before a baby understands that if they physically manipulate something, something will happen. So babies and infants understand that emotional connectedness and they understand the emotional well-being. So that is more important than anything else. And I think with the pandemic and all the mental health issues that everybody is going through. And let me just say, the research basically says every single child will have gone to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And those children who are marginalized and racialized will suffer much more PTSD. And the effects of PTSD will last for at least three to four years. You know, when we think we're going back to normal, just think. Babies, children, youth, we've all gone through PTSD, but more so with youth. And our primary goal is to support children's mental health needs. And I think one of the best ways to support mental health needs is through music. Because music connects us, you know, it connects us with other people, connects us with our emotional understanding. It's in essence a way that we communicate not only music, but how we are and how our feelings are. You can always tell when you're watching a child make music, you can, you can immediately tell how they are. They don't need to tell you that, right? So you can see that in how they engage with music. So I really think music is a very powerful means to support mental health. And I think more than curriculum, I tell music teachers, forget about the curriculum. It doesn't matter if they can play a D major scale. It doesn't matter if they can play this concerto or that concerto. It doesn't matter if they pass their RCM exam. What it matters is that you let them know that they're important, that you treasure their growth and that you are here to support them. And if it means you play a lot of music that makes them joyful, nothing more important than that. Here's Richard Marcella, director of the school and familiar narrator from the top of each episode, describing how the school's operation evolved over the pandemic. We took a little longer than many of the community music schools that we knew in the country, in, in North America, in fact. We consulted a lot within our network. and. We really wanted to get it right. Like we weren't the first school to kind of jump into, say, Zoom learning, like in, in the moment learning. We took our time because we wanted to get policy and safety right. So what we did was, I think from like basically March to June, we worked with our faculty and our students in doing like almost a one way or not, not totally one way, but uh, more heavily weighted towards our faculty doing communications to our students. 
we did fun things. I remember well, fun nothing was fun at that point, but, um, we did like Instagram live sessions with some of our faculty, our DJs got on there and it was just like reimagining what community was in this new kind of paradigm that we found ourselves in. So then it started. And, and of course we were panicking, whether that was like internal or shared among, but we started to prioritize health in a way as a community music school. And we'd never really done that as deliberately as when this moment in, you know, in our history kind of hit us. So it, look, and, and, and I think our bonds between community music programs, like with Sarah McLaughlin School of Music and others really strengthened. So like the bond between teacher and student carried through into this weird virtual world that we found ourselves in. So that was kind of like the observation that was, that warmed the heart is like attendance levels were actually dare I say better than pre-pandemic, which is weird, but interesting. So how did the pandemic cause programming to change? Eventually we found our footing on getting a good safe policy for like, I saw all of our team, our programming team, our admin team really flex in ways that they hadn't before, right? Like it was, it was just like, we wear many hats on a good day, but this was like a festival of that, you know? And so we opened up like a mimic in Regent Park and a mimic in Jane Finch virtually. So you had different Zoom rooms. For example, Studio One here in Regent Park had its own Zoom room. So we just kind of like basically did a virtual version of the schools, right? And that was revelatory. So, uh, you know, how it changed our programming is it, it gave us I remember pre-pandemic, one of our students broke their leg, right? And I, w I was like, well, we don't want you to lose like a month of lessons. So let's try to do a Skype lesson, one Skype lesson, not even knowing the word Zoom back then. And it failed miserably. And we gave up on it after week one. We're just like, oh, well, that sucked. And then it ended up being like for two years, basically our only trick. I wouldn't say our only trick, but it was the core of our programming. It was as important as a physical building to us, to giving us that connection with our students every week. And that became the bond. Those bonds, as I mentioned, remained. And so exciting to kind of see some of those elements. Some students actually thrived more in that setting, but we want to kind of preserve that moving forward. I think that's like the deeper learning for us as an organization is if some students thrive more in that environment, why would you take that environment away from them? If it's a point of access for a lot of students, why would you take that away from them? So we're actually letting the dust settle on our return to in-person right now for maybe a year. And then we're actually, we're going to re-examine what a virtual school might look like moving forward. Once this mess of a health crisis is behind us, I think for me, that's the stuff that we extract from it and come out stronger. I've always said my mantra through it was like with the fire in this building, when we had a fire here in 2018, we had to get out of the space because it was like flooded a, a foot of water and it was a mess, right? But we came out of that month not being in the building. We, we pivoted, we threw our whole hard drive into a virtual world. So we were kind of, we were doing these meetings. We were kind of like ready for the pandemic in a lot of ways before the pandemic. Like it wasn't like the Monday after March 13th, 2020, I found my whole team in, in Teams video meeting right away. Like we, we didn't have to think much on that end. We had to think much on every other end, but it was like, I kept saying, we're going to come out of this stronger. And now finally, like we're all saying things like it's going to be a marathon, but oh my, I didn't think it would be a three year slog to get to our next in-person recital, which is coming up, you know? So that's exciting.
On the topic of recitals, that first online winter recital was such an important moment for me. In the loneliness of the first pandemic winter, reconnecting with my community to enjoy music was actually really good for my well-being. I like literally go back to that date and say like, yeah, we haven't had another one of those. So then it became very emotional, like doing pandemic recitals, basically in, in Zoom, we all of a sudden started running. I kept equating it to like, we're basically running a television station now. It, for those SCTV fans out there, it's like, oh, I guess I'm Guy Caballero. You know, it's like, what the, what, what are we in here? And then that, that's kind of, that got fun because what we're good at, creativity in, and building community around creative forms of self-expression. So music, television, sure, like, let's do it. So like, all of a sudden, our team started like, we're backstage in Zoom, we're ready, we've got, you know, 100 people. Oh, we, we sold out our first we had to buy the the bigger Zoom room because it's like, sorry, everybody, like there's too many people here. You're not allowed to come into our recital. It was like, that's a fun problem to have, you know, but then you start seeing like familiar faces in that new space. And that was so encouraging. You know, I think that's kind of what carried us through is like these new art forms that were, were kind of. So in a, in an in-person recital, you got to do it live, right? And so we would have a live performance option in Zoom, but then we would also have a pre-record that felt like the student would be in the Zoom room watching themselves perform with less risk of like failing. So that's also kind of a, that was an interesting thing to kind of observe these little subtleties of like getting to the same spot or maybe even a better spot that's more uplifting for the student and empowering, you know, um, all these things were very special and it's kind of the essence of what we do want to carry forward with how we do this. Here's a question for all of my creative listeners. What did you do for comfort during the pandemic? How did you negotiate and witness unity? If part of your answer involves online platforms like TikTok, YouTube, or Twitch, then welcome to the club. My creative engagements over the past couple years fed the most comfort-seeking parts of my soul. Hobbies that before the pandemic, I would have just written off as just silly. I immersed myself in a peaceful video game called Animal Crossing and picked up miniature painting in the form of nail art. I began sharing my hobbies on social media so I could trade tips and giggle at memes, staying connected with my distant internet peers. Here's Sarah Bay Jung's take on the power of this type of connection. We're in such an interesting moment. I'm really excited by this moment. And, and memes are a good example, right? Like memes come from this idea that really goes back to Aristotle, right? The, what is the root of a meme? It is mimetic. It's imitation. It's mimicry. It's this echoing of something that you see, but twisting it of adding your own take on it. And that again is the essence of performance since time immemorial. It's, it's people imitating each other. But I also see it in playing out in a really interesting way in something like TikTok, where you now have the ability to create, but to create collaboratively. So I'm, I'm thinking of everything. I mean, one of the best examples of this was during the pandemic when the sea shanty moment came and you had people all over the world harmonizing with one another and finding their ways into some of these extended collaborations and, and duets. And I don't even know how to 
turn a duet into, I mean, trio, quartet, quintet, it's, you know, going on and people would play different vocal parts and then somebody else would come in with a violin and someone else would come in with drums and then there would be variations on this. And some friends of mine and I began rewriting these based on our own Zoom experiences. And then we would exchange those as these like little parody songs for each other's birthdays. And again, that is always what performance cultures have done and facilitate. And we just have new tools. And so I really reject the idea that somehow people thought about this differently in the past, or more often what you hear is a kind of dismissing of emerging culture and youth culture as uninformed or unaware or just not as not as sophisticated. I think it's brilliant and often more sophisticated. It's just using different tools and it's talking in a different way. So I find tremendous excitement in in all of these things. So yes, I'm right there with you with the subreddits and, and the ways that we form community when we're not all standing around in the same office in the same way. From the small scale of TikTok to the large scale of stadium concert experiences, participation in art and music making has transformed tremendously. I certainly found myself musically engaged in unanticipated ways. I paid 50 bucks to watch BTS perform in LA. <laughs> in fact, I've, I've attended more concerts uh, uh, probably in 2021 uh, than I had in the years leading up to it. So... Well, that's, you know, and, and I will say, I mean, you know, I don't want to presume that you're ARMY or not. Side note. ARMY is BTS's very vocal and very dedicated fan base. But certainly BTS is, uh, they are, to my mind, one of the real masters of, of facilitating the hybrid of digital and, and embodied performances and their ability to engage their fan base and the fan base. I mean, I find army to army, like as a community, extraordinary. I mean, what an amazing, creative, vibrant community. I mean, there is nothing that army cannot do in all of its different permutations. Like I really, I'm, I'm waiting for army to, and I am not myself, but um, I, I'm just not, I, I, I can't, I can't claim that, but I, I have an up close view of it. And it, and it, I really, I think if the world changes for the better, it will be, Army will play some really critical part in this. In my old life as a server in March 2020, I really wasn't ready for how our normal systems and ways of life were bound to bend and break. The healing process has been long and slow, but peppered with innovation and surprises. The flexibility required of us these last few years have taught me that comfort and creativity takes on unexpected forms and to always embrace the ever-changing shape of human connection. Thank you for listening to Every Little Voice Season 4. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and please go to www.communitymusic.org to learn more about our organization. I'd like to thank our interviewees, starting with Tomas Muir, also Drs. Sarah Bay Chang, Bina John, and Parmala Atariwala. We couldn't do this amazing season without our co-producers. That's Danielle Muir and Evan Desaulnier. Thank you so much for all your hard work. All the music that you're hearing this episode is performed by students from the Community Music Schools of Toronto in collaboration with our friends at the Kingsway Music Library. 
Tune in next month for the next installment of Season 4 of Every Little Voice. Thank you for listening.